This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Facebook has dealt with numerous criticisms on its policies, data, privacy, and more. We've seen Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg testify before Congress. We've heard the stories about whether people should stop using the social media site because of its failings to deal with fake news. But the goals of Facebook are now fairly different than those of only a decade ago. It was considered a social good and something that was changing communication between friends and family members. Roger McNamee, a former early investor in Facebook, thanks Thanks to his relationship with Zuckerberg, digs into Facebook's current, future, and past in the new book, Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. And it's a pleasure to have him joining us right now. Roger, thank you very much for your time today. No, Dan, it's really I'm really psyched to be there. I'm a Phillies fan, so I'm really psyched that pitchers and catchers have reported. <laughs> well, I am too. Thank you very much for coming on the show today. Um, so when you look at it, and obviously this has been a, 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 a very much talked about uh, company over the last couple of years, what do you think within the structure of the company or how it is it is uh, it has played itself out really has gone wrong? Well, so the key thing to understand from my perspective was I'd spent uh, 34 years as a tech investor and really a tech optimist. I was lucky enough to get there before the personal computer industry was really started. When I met Mark Zuckerberg in 2006, he was 22. The company was two years old. He had a a huge business challenge he was facing, and I was asked to come in and give him some advice. And it happened that I was able to help him through that problem, and that began a three-year period where I was one of the advisors who was close to him. And it was, I will tell you, I thought he was amazing. I thought that Facebook had absolutely solved a core network issue. What we had discovered in the past was that when networks get more than tens of thousands of people large, if you allow anonymity, then trolls, bad guys, basically take over and bully everybody else. And what Mark had done was he had real identity. And he also had real privacy controls. The problem was he also had an opportunity to be the largest network in the history of humanity. And the goal of connecting everyone in the world conflicted with that original design criterion of requiring uh, real identity and having real privacy. And so those things went away. And by the way... When I first saw the issues in 2016, and I reached out to Mark and Sheryl Sandberg in October of 2016, I had thought that the issues were specific to Facebook. Just right. around, and it was around the business model, this notion of advertising, where what you're really trying to do is to manipulate people's attention, you know, using things like likes and uh, notifications in order to sort of entice them to come back, and then appealing to fear and anger in the way that you organize the news feed in order to get people to share stuff, that that model was unique to Facebook. It turns out it's not. It right. exists on Facebook. It exists on Instagram and WhatsApp to a, to a degree, but very specifically on YouTube and parts of Google as well. And so it's, it's actually an industry-wide problem. The business model has been so successful that these companies, they have legitimate uh, economic power, but they've also gained public, um, really political power where they dominate the public square in every democracy. And that's really unhealthy because they're not elected and they're not accountable. And they haven't yet shown the kind of maturity to deal with that kind of responsibility, to understand that they really have to protect the people who use their products. And I don't blame them as people. I really don't. I really think that this is 
combination of the, the, the larger culture that Silicon Valley has evolved to and these business models that created so much success that they got in their own little bubble and just didn't realize the damage they were doing. Well, it's interesting because when you, you think of, uh, of what America has been, uh, you know, over the, the hundreds of years, uh, you know, the idea of capitalism is, is one that obviously has been prevalent, you know, to be able to try and be successful and make the money that, that you can. And I guess that social media sites were not considered that at the outset. They are obviously now. And you can see how there is a, a changing dynamic because of this right now. Well, and, and I think they came along at a moment in time when things were possible that had never been possible before. You could never build a global okay. network like Facebook until exactly the time they showed up. And we did not have a, an economic environment before then either where literally anything goes. And there's no regulatory restraint. There are no countervailing forces. No government's really in a position to change the behavior of these companies. And the truth is they've evolved from what I would describe as capitalism to some new business model. And it works like this. In advertising, the person who reads the magazine or watches the TV show isn't the customer. They're the product. The customer is the advertiser. In the model that Facebook and Google have evolved, they've gone beyond that. Right. Now they gather data not to make their product and service better for the person who's using it, but rather they gather the data to do other things that the person whose data they're using may not even get a benefit from. And that, you know, uh, there's a Harvard scholar named uh, Shoshana Zuboff who calls this surveillance capitalism. Okay. You know, whatever word you want to put to it, it's a new business model. And... It has this fundamental flaw in that the vast majority of the population doesn't enjoy enough of the benefits to justify the harm that's being done. So when you when you factor in what's going on with Facebook right now and, and throwing Google, uh, obviously, in there as well, uh, what does this potentially mean looking down the road for our society? Well, Dan, this is the real thing that scares the heck out of me. So I think there are four classes of problem that we need to address. And my book is, imagine when I wrote this book that I started at the beginning thinking these guys were perfect, right? I was, you know, a cheerleader. And, you know, as I'm a little bit like Jimmy Stewart in Rear Window, I see something that looks like totally wrong and I pull on the thread. And the book describes my journey of discovery and helps you as the reader understand what's going on. And there are four problems. One relates to public health. Essentially, these products manipulate attention. And in really little kids, the consequences are horrible. In teenagers, there's a lot of bullying on products like Instagram. And, you know, um, with adults, of course, you have what are known as filter bubbles, which is this concept of reinforcing the things you already like to the point where you live in your own reality. And it's really aggravated the... Uh, the nature of conflict in the U.S. that left and right can no longer talk to each other. The second class of problems just deal with democracy. It, it comes directly from that, um, that problem of public health because these products essentially allow politics to change from politicians persuading us to they can now use the advertising tools of these companies to manipulate, essentially to appeal to the weakest issue for each, uh, each voter, 
And you can either suppress votes or, in some cases, change votes by appealing to things that are unique to each voter and may have absolutely nothing to do with the electoral process going on. The third issue is, is privacy. Privacy is the thing that we've had the most conversation about. And people really don't understand it. They say, hey, my data's already out there. They say, I got nothing to hide. And those things are demonstrably true, but they're not the point. Now the problem is the way they use your data to affect other people. Yeah. And that's a big problem. And then the last thing, and this is the one where, you know, if you're a warden, this is a big deal. These guys are acting like monopolists. Yeah. So it's impossible to do a startup today to compete in their markets. And we're long past the time when there should be dozens of people creating alternative visions, more decentralized, more, um, if you will, user-friendly, more humane approaches to this technology. We're joined by Roger McNamee, who is the author of the book, Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. Uh, Roger, one of the other big questions surrounding the companies like Facebook and the other social media platforms is is whether or not they are going to end up being regulated by the U.S. government in the years to come. And and, and obviously having some of these executives in front of Congress probably leads us further down that path. Well, so, Dan, I think we have to look at a lot of different things. The good news is that we, the human beings, formerly known as users, have more power in this thing than we realize. We do have the power to change our behaviors. I mean, I was hopelessly addicted. i got to be honest with you, I still love Facebook as a product. Uh, But we do have the power to change our behavior in ways that reduce their power over us. And we have the ability to influence our elected representatives to do the right thing. Right. The challenge we have here from a regulatory point of view is that the current products, and this is Facebook and Google and the properties they own, have created the equivalent of digital chemical spills. So they're, they're artificially profitable because there are side effects from their success that they are not paying the cost of. And as with the chemical industry, we're going to have to match the costs better to the people who create them. And I think that's a form of regulation that really matters. We have to really look at how data is used. I mean, one of the questions I really ask is, why is it legal to collect data on minors? Sure, yeah. Why is it yeah. legal to sell credit card information? You know, your transaction records. Why is that legal? We've actually never had a debate about that. Essentially, these companies have, have, have taken a notion like eminent domain and just said, hey, wait a minute, we have this data, so we own it. And I'm not sure that's right. And I'm not sure it's right to sell geolocation data, because between the credit card data and geolocation, you can create a really, really high-resolution map of anybody, even people who are not on Facebook and Google. And so I find that very troubling. The other issues are the ones looking forward. With artificial intelligence, we've had all these examples of AI products that carry over the biases of the real world because they train the system with data from the real world, and so they don't correct for implicit biases. So recruiting apps on AI have gender bias and racial bias, and mortgage applications often have the equivalent of redlining, where people of certain religions and certain races aren't able to get loans in certain neighborhoods. And that's ridiculous. It's totally unnecessary, and it really shows a lack of care and judgment. So I think with AI, we should require a technology solution that demonstrates safety, 
efficacy and lack of bias. In effect, the things have to be testable in real time. We have to be able to understand how they work. And this is much easier than it would be with pharmaceuticals because we can do this in code and make it standard for everybody. When you look at products like Alexa or Google Home, so these are smart speakers and smart appliances and smart cars, they're collecting data in places we've never been before. Yeah. And there's already evidence that the systems are hackable. You know, our military is very concerned about the manufacturers of some of the hardware. So the, even if you trust Amazon and Google, and there are at least some evidence that you want to be cautious even there, um, there are a lot of other failure modes in these things. And the value they provide is relatively small in comparison to the potential risk. And so I want to focus on that. And then lastly, I just want to remind everybody that our kids are being subjected to forces that they're developing brains are just not ready for that you know that now that we've had a whole generation of kids exposed super early to technology pediatricians are saying hang on maybe that wasn't such a good idea that maybe computers in a classroom are not a good idea except for special needs kids that you want to use the classroom to teach kids how to pay attention to teach them socialization skills and have the computers be at home and you know, you want to keep really little kids off screens entirely because their brains can't handle the overstimulation. And you right. for sure don't want YouTube kids being full of age-inappropriate stuff. So there are a lot of different issues. And I look at this and say, for everybody who's out there, pick the issue that matters to you, whether it's kids, whether it's democracy, whether it's privacy, whether it's, you know, entrepreneurship and innovation. And let's start conversations with lots of people, and let's figure out how to solve these problems. We're joined by Roger McNamee, author of the book Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. You know, Roger, in talking about the education side of things for, for a second, what's interesting is because we've had this kind of increase in use of technology, and a lot of people have figured, well, you know what, as our culture is kind of going more digital, it's a good thing to have our kids using these types of products while, while they're in school. The other interesting part is there's been the, the discussion of, of whether or not we need to change our curriculum as well in schools because of what we are going to be needing down the road. So, I, Dan, I actually think that we now have a lot of evidence that says that that is exactly backwards. Look, there are always going to be kids who are drawn to coding and want to get involved with computers early. But this notion that every minute of every kid's day needs to be scheduled is now something under considerable discussion and, I think, increasing doubt. And the notion that every kid needs to be exposed to screens on the first day is, is completely nuts. Because what are they right. doing? They're playing games. They're texting. You walk into a McDonald's, and there's four teenagers sitting around a table. And they're not talking to each other. They're not making eye contact. They're texting to each other. Yeah. That, is, yeah. that is not preparing you for <laughs> yeah. real life, okay? I interview kids all the time who have trouble making eye contact. It is not their fault, okay? <laughs> yeah. And my point is, there's just, listen, I've been as addicted as anybody. And so I'm looking at this thing and going, I get the problem. I mean, I always ask people my age, I say, when you wake up in the morning, when do you check your phone? Is it before you pee or while you're peeing? <laughs> I don't know anybody who waits any longer than that, right? Right, yes. And, and so 
the, the thing to understand is the technology right now is not serving the interests of the people who buy it and use it. And it doesn't have to be that way, right? Yeah. I mean, there is so much good about what Google has, and there is so much good about what Facebook has. It's insane that they're allowing the bad uses to happen. They will be less profitable when they take care. But guess what? There's only two choices. They're either going to do it themselves or it's going to be imposed on them. And the same thing is true of Amazon and all the people who are making Internet of Things smart devices and all the people making artificial intelligence. Society doesn't want to be turned into a bunch of basket cases. I mean, AI, the three big money-making uses today are getting rid of people's jobs, yeah. telling them what to think with the filter bubbles on Facebook or, or Google, and recommendation engines, which tell us the kinds of things we ought to enjoy. And I'm sitting there going, wait a minute, you're telling me I'm going to delegate my job, what I think, and what I like to a computer? That doesn't strike me as the highest value uses of these things. Those were low-hanging fruit that were easy to do. But I really believe AI can be the technology penicillin of the 21st century. We just need to direct it at stuff that's really valuable. And we need to empower humans rather than taking away the things that make them individual, the things that make each of us unique. And, you know, I just think it's lazy thinking. And part of it comes from the old Silicon Valley notion that you ship a product the minute it works and you let the people who use it sort out all the bugs and all the flaws. Yeah. And this stuff's too important to do that anymore. I want to ask you a quick question because you were around there uh, around 2005 when the idea of, of Facebook being sold to Yahoo uh, had come up on the market. And, and I'd be interested in looking back at it now. If that had actually gone down, would Facebook be any different than it is right now? Yeah, so it was It was actually 2006 when I first 2006. met Mark. Okay. And it turns out the nature of our conversation, which I describe in the book as part of my Jimmy Stewart journey from stupidity to figuring this thing out, um, is that, yes, Yahoo and uh, Microsoft and others, I thought, were likely to buy the company. It turns out the first offer came from, from Yahoo. Yeah. And... I think had any other large company bought Facebook, it would not have been the, become the company we see today. That it took Mark's genius and that extraordinary team and the fact that they were so intensely motivated. If you had stuck it inside a place with, uh, with lots of corporate bureaucracy, it would have caused a lot of bad decisions to get made along the way. Now, in fairness, I think a lot less harm would have been done. But I like the good parts of Facebook, and I like the good parts of Google, and I want to find a way to preserve those things. And, you know, I just wish the teams at those companies were a little bit more aware right. that they live in a big world and have a duty to protect the people who use their products. Roger, great uh, talking with you. It's a fantastic book. Uh, wish you all the best with it. Uh, just came much. out. Uh, enjoy just your time. made the New York Times bestseller list, which made my, my mother is smiling down from heaven, and I think that's a good all right. Time. The Phillies are going to have a better year this year. Thanks, Roger. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Roger McNamee, uh, the author of Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. As we mentioned, it is uh, available in bookstores and online right now. And as Roger said, apparently it is on the New York Times bestseller list. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.